God Conversations with Tanya Harris. So, let me ask you that question. What does God say? <laughs> well, you know, thunder, lightning. <laughs> Mother Teresa, someone asked her, when does God speak to you? And she said, whenever he wants. So essentially, the, the Bible is a, a collection of God Conversations, if you like. I had a vision of a car accident, and I'm sitting on the couch thinking, why have I just seen this? How could I know if God was speaking to me? How could I know that that or that thought was actually just me thinking about, oh, I've had some bad pizza. Jesus said we'd recognise his voice. It was never meant to be a one-way conversation. How could God have created the world in six days when geological data says it took over four billion years? Does the Bible support the scientific idea that humans came from monkeys? And where did Cain's wife come from? These are the kinds of questions that come up today when people read the big story of creation in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. And while these questions are important in a scientific and progressive world, when we look to answer them from the creation account, we're missing the main message of the story. Hi, and welcome to episode 43, the God Conversations podcast. My name is Tanya Harris, and I'm a pastor, speaker, and founder of this ministry that equips you to recognize and respond to God's voice. This week on the show, we're talking about the big story, why debates about science and creation are often missing the point. We're going to discuss the things that Genesis does say rather than the things it doesn't. We're going to learn about the foundations of our faith and how they shaped Western civilization. And we're going to talk about how the opening chapters of Genesis teach us the main things we need to know, who God is, who we are, and what we're called to do. Well, if you've been around long enough, you'll have heard of some of the debates and the discussions around the first few chapters of the Bible. Like, for example, when did God start creating the world? When was the beginning? Was it 6,000 years ago, if you count back all the genealogies in Genesis chapter 5? Or is a day like a thousand years and therefore it's a lot more than that? And what about the gap theory that says, well, there may have been gaps of time between each day of creation? And then, of course, there are other questions as well, like where did Cain's wife come from if there was no one else around? And why are there two accounts in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and they have different order to creation in them? And, of course, that old question you may have heard of, did Adam have a belly button if he had no natural mother and was formed from the ground? These are the kinds of questions that have occupied our scientific minds They've also been the cause of all sorts of debates in the church. In fact, some people's faith has even been lost over this kind of dilemma, particularly as they've gone to university and they've studied science at any great length. But the truth is Genesis chapter 1 and 2 was not actually given to answer those questions. When it was first presented to the first readers, it had other things to say, things that are actually far more important to our lives than scientific matters. So in this series, we're going to look at what Genesis does say rather than what it doesn't. And to do that, first of all, we have to understand a little bit of the world in which the story was written, a little bit of the world of the ancient Near East. This was a very different time to ours and people had a very different understanding of how the world worked. There was also lots of different ideas about how the world came to be. 
For example, in one account that we know of from ancient Mesopotamia, the world was formed when two different gods had a battle, (laughs) they had a fight for power, and the remains of the god who lost was used to create the world. And then some of the leftover blood was used to create human beings. Another creation story had the gods using humans for labour, or they used them for their dirty work, if you like. So it's against that backdrop that when we have another look at Genesis, we begin to see that the biblical account couldn't be more different. And what it shows is a very different God and a very different creation. And God has some really important things to say through it. We're going to look at some of those this week. But first of all, we're going to see something of who God is. We see that there is one God, not many. We see a creator God who is deeply personal, who creates order out of the chaos. He's all-powerful. He speaks, and then it is. He creates because it's in his nature to do so. And ultimately, he puts humanity at the pinnacle of his creation. This story of creation is so different from the other stories that were around, and it presents a very different God. And that becomes so important because the God that we have influences the people we become. Let me share a story that illustrates this. It's taken from a novel, a James Mission novel called The Source. It's a fictional story, but it's set in these times around about 2200 BC. And it tells a story about a man called Herbal and his wife. And the couple had been trying for a baby for years. They were thrilled when they finally gave birth to a little baby boy. He was about nine months old when the priests began to warn the people. The stars were showing that there was a military threat coming from the north. And in order to ensure the protection of the gods in this ancient fertility cult, eight firstborn sons had to be sacrificed to them. Well, the story goes on and it tells how Herbal came home one day to discover red marks on his little baby boy's arms. His wife was hysterical because their son had been chosen by the priests for sacrifice. Now, the father, Herbal, has to act as though this is a wonderful privilege. His son has been chosen by the gods to be sacrificed. There was to be no grief, no panic, or otherwise the god Malak would be angry. The day comes, and in the square of the city, there's a huge stone idol of Malak standing there. Its arms are wide and flat and outstretched, and they're on a sloping angle so that when the baby is placed on them, it tumbles down the hole and into the idol's mouth, where there's a raging hot fire. At the ceremony, one of the mothers screams when her son is fed to the fire and the priests show their displeasure at the outburst. Of course, Herbal grips his wife by the arm to warn her to silence. When their son is finally presented, Herbal's wife begins to cry out and her husband stifles her cries. Afterwards, there's another ceremony and the father is selected to spend seven days with a temple prostitute. So for this woman, not only has she lost her son, but she has to watch as her husband betrays her. And then there's a line in the story as she's walking away, grieving what's just happened. She says these words, With different gods, her husband Herbal 
would have been a different man. See, this was the world in which the Genesis story was first presented, and that's why it's so important to understand the real significance of this account. The opening chapters of Genesis answer the most important questions we have about life, the theological questions, the why questions, the questions of who God is and who we are and what are we as people are called to do. Scientific questions weren't even on their mind. In fact, science was not really around till the 17th century. God wanted to make a statement. He wanted to say, this is who I am and this is who you are. And for that reason, these chapters become the foundation of our faith. And the scientific questions are important and it's important that we discover them. In fact, Christianity was actually the basis by which science developed. We understood that the world was ordered and formed with a mind and so there was a need to investigate and research and discover. But it's interesting that even though the ancient people of the world didn't have a good scientific knowledge, their cosmology, the way they saw the world, was not correct at the time. But God didn't take great pains to fix it. He didn't speak about the scientific questions. He spoke about the things that really mattered. He wanted to reveal himself. He wanted to say, I'm not like those other gods. This is who I am. I'm a personal God. I'm a powerful God. And I created you for purpose. You know, our idea of who God is and how he acts towards us is absolutely crucial to who we are as people. And the Genesis story was given to tell us exactly what God is like. And the message it sends us is radically different to how the rest of the world thought at the time. When Genesis was first given, it was given to the peoples of the ancient Near East, a world where religion was an integral part of life. But it was nothing like the religious world that we know of today. To begin with, worship was polytheistic. In other words, people worshipped many gods. And the gods were nothing like the God of the Bible. They were more like high-level administrators of a system, caught up in it, but definitely not separate from it. In fact, they acted like supersized humans, overinflated people with superpowers. They were male and they were female. They fell in love. They got into bad moods and they fought each other. (laughs) They were also related to some feature of nature, so closely tied up with some sort of natural phenomena. So you had a storm god or a fertility god or there was a god of the mountains or a god of the sea. And as far as ancient peoples were concerned, the gods dwelt in temples. So that's where you would go to worship. Each god had a different temple, and inside that temple was an image that would represent them. So if you're living in this day and age, the aim was to keep the gods happy. If you wanted a good crop, you made sacrifices to the storm god to get enough rain. Or if you wanted to fall in love, you appeased the relevant goddess. If you wanted to have a baby, you went to the fertility god. You'd go to the temple, bow down to the image and make sacrifices to it, depending on what you wanted or needed at the time. Knowing that kind of background, now read the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Can you notice the differences? They are absolutely striking. The God of the Bible is nothing like the ancient gods. Two things I want you to notice, the first being the ultimate power of Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name for God. He is all-powerful. 
Think about it. He speaks and then it is. Let there be light and there was light. Just like that. His voice is what creates. Let there be seas and oceans and plants and trees and then it is. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is not battling it out with other gods to see who is the most powerful. He's not engaged in some sort of cosmic battle. There's no competition here. He is, I am, the first and the last, the ultimate source of everything we have and everything we are. In fact, you'll notice that there's quite a bit of attention in the Genesis account that's given to the sun, moon and stars. Remember that in the ancient world, these were actually considered to be gods. But here, Yahweh, God, is seen to be the creator of them. They're not gods. They're just lights in the sky. There's not a storm god. A storm is just a storm. God is seen to be supreme over his creation, and that includes any other gods. There is truly no other god before him. There's one other thing that's really important to notice, and it's this. God is not impersonal. In the story, he's constantly depicted to be a deeply personal deity. He has a will and a mind, and he speaks. In fact, this is such a foundational truth of our Christian faith. God is personal. And again, this is a radical and unusual idea in the ancient world. Greek philosophers such as Plato defined reality in impersonal terms. But God, the one of the Bible, is deeply personal. He is the God who speaks back. You may have heard the story of Elijah, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 19. The prophet has just been through an incredibly stressful time. He's running away from an evil queen and a king, and he finds himself out in the wilderness all alone and depressed. Then he prays. He finds himself experiencing a wind in response, then a fire, then an earthquake. But it goes on to say that God is not in the wind. He's not in the storm. He's not in the fire, and he's not in the earthquake. What is it saying? It's saying Yahweh is not a storm god. He's not a fire god. He's not like all those other gods who are associated with natural phenomena. He's not like how those other gods are portrayed. Instead, how does he come? He comes as a voice, a still small voice speaking to his servant. You know, it's language that makes us personal. It's language that calls for communication and relationship. God, the creator, is portrayed as a person who has a mind and a will and who speaks, who wants to know and be known. He's a relational God. Yes, he's powerful, but he's not just a force that's to be appeased or bowed to. Genesis tells us who God is, a God who is powerful and mighty, but also a God who's personal. (laughs) That's such a profound idea that we see in the opening chapters of Genesis, and I don't want you to miss it. You know, I have quite a few friends who call themselves spiritual, but not so much religious. In fact, if you look around at the statistics these days, you'll see that this is the fastest growing group of people in our population. And when I chat with my friend, I find that she talks a lot about the universe. She says things like, the universe seems to be saying this about my job, or the universe is working out to make me see this new idea. 
My friend recognises that there's a force out there, something outside of herself that intervenes in her life, something working together in her life. (laughs) I said to her once, you know, if you just substituted the word God for the universe, we'd actually sound the same. But the difference is, of course, is that God speaks and that his speech is recognisable, that he wants to speak about our lives. He wants to speak to us where we're at, just like he did for Elijah. He wants to come and speak to him and encourage him and show him things about his life. It's not a force working together. It's not something out there. It's someone And that's one of the key messages that we see in this amazing account of creation. The big story forms the foundation of a faith, a faith that tells us who God is, that he is both powerful and supreme, but he's also deeply personal. God promises to speak to us, but how do we know it's him? The ability to hear God's voice is part of our inheritance as followers of Jesus. His words have the power to transform us, to guide us into His purpose and give us wisdom for our everyday lives. Now you can learn how to hear God's voice for yourself through our six-week online course at godconversations.com. You can start at any time. Just sign up from the comfort of your own home or join with a group to learn what God's voice sounds like his nature as a communicator, and how to recognize his voice among the many that we hear. The e-course includes eight high-quality video presentations, downloadable study guides, interaction on discussion boards, and access to bonus resources from God Conversations. It's fantastic value and has the potential to change your life. Jesus promised we would know his voice such that we could follow it. It was never meant to be a one-way conversation. Register now at godconversations.com forward slash e-course. We've been looking at Genesis from the understanding of the people of the ancient world. And when we put it up against that backdrop, God's revelation is stunningly different to what people then thought. He is both personal and powerful. He's not like the storm God or the fertility God. He's not like the gods who got into bad moods and fought each other. He is supreme above all, so powerful that he can create the world with just a word. Not only that, but he's personal. He actually speaks. He dwells with his people. He communicates with them. He relates with them. This is a deeply relational God. But Genesis has much more to say about the foundational questions of our lives. And today we're going to look at who we are. What does this account say about us? These are such important questions because they form our identity. They help us to understand our place in the world. And again, the big story has some ideas in it that were totally radical for their time. In fact, they're ideas that have shaped our Western civilization and made it a far better place for us to live. So remembering the backdrop of the ancient world again, in other creation accounts, we see that humanity is portrayed very differently to how we see it today. So in one ancient account, the Enuma Elish, there's a cosmic conflict between the two leading gods, Marduk and the mother goddess Tiamat. They battle it out on the world stage and Marduk kills Tiamat. 
Then he divides her carcass and uses it to create the heavens and the earth. Then he takes the blood of her co-conspirator and creates humanity to do the hard work of the universe. In other words, humanity is created from the leftovers of a battle. They're used for slave labour. That's what the ancient people thought of themselves. Slave labour, subject to the gods, leftovers, an afterthought, the remains of a cosmic battle. That's how they defined who they were. And of course, they acted out of that. Now, let's take a look at the big story. Let's see what God has to say about humanity, how we are depicted in the scriptures. What does the inspired author of Genesis have to say about who we are? So the story goes that God makes everything. He makes the sun, the moon, the stars, and these were good. He makes the trees and the plants, and these were good. But then what's the last thing that he made on that final day of creation? That climactic moment, God's final voila. The way the account is written, it's like a song with a climax, a story with a punchline. And here we see that the final product was humanity. Everything else was good. The stars were good, the trees were good, the fish were good, but humanity, that was very good. And we see it again in the second account of creation in Genesis 2, where everything is made for humanity to enjoy. It's given to Adam and Eve. Go and eat of everything. This is for you. There's no leftover thought here. There's no concept that humanity was made as slave labor for the gods. On the contrary, how are we pictured? We're pictured as being of incredible value to God. In Psalms chapter 8, it says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? You've made them a little lower than the angels. You've crowned them with glory and honor. You even made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. God made us rulers of the earth. He gave us everything for us to enjoy, to take dominion, to look after. And he describes us as being crowned with glory and honor. These are divine attributes in the scripture. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, made of clay, but destined for glory. At a time when the ancient world saw human beings as creation's leftovers, God raised us up to be the leaders and the rulers of the earth. In fact, Genesis goes on to say in chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, that both man and woman are made in the image of God. Sounds wonderful. But what actually does that mean? To understand what this means, we have to have another look at the ancient world again. You see, back then, every god would have his or her own temple where they would dwell. And in the heart of the temple would be an image, some sort of statue that was made to represent the god of the temple. The priests would pray over the statue. They would invoke the spirit of the god that they're worshipping to indwell the image. And then people would come to the temple and bow to the image. The image represented the presence of the God. It's kind of like an ambassador coming to another country or raising a flag over a different territory. The flag would represent the presence and the sovereignty of the leader. For example, you may have heard of the name of the Egyptian king Tutankhamun. 
That word Tutankhamun actually means the living image of the god Amun. Tutankhamun was supposed to represent the authority of the god Amun. So in the Genesis story, the language there tells us that God's temple is not one that's built of stone, but rather it's the creation, the whole of creation, that beautiful garden where God is seen to dwell. But the question is, where is the image in this garden temple? In fact, later we see in the commandments that God's people are expressly forbidden from making an image of God. So where is the symbol of God's presence in this particular temple? Well, in God's temple, there is no stone statue, but there is an image. And what is it? Well, humanity is the image. In other words, men and women are called to represent God. There's no prayer to invoke the spirit over a statue, but rather God has breathed his spirit, his life into his image, the image of of humanity. What a beautiful picture. We are his representatives here on this earth, sent to to symbolize his presence, to bring his presence into not just a stone temple, but into a garden, into a beautiful created world that he's given for us to enjoy. Not only that, you know, but this story also says that both men and women were made in his image. Both genders are seen to represent him and to carry his presence in the world. There's no conflict here. There's not one who's better than the other. Both are valuable in God's eyes and are called to be in relationship with him and to enjoy the world that he has personally created for us. What an incredible message that we find in the big story. These are foundational truths that have built our Judeo-Christian heritage and give meaning to our lives if we truly understand them. The opening chapters of Genesis actually give us a very clear picture of what we're called to do. And that answer comes in the setting of the world in which we live, God's good creation. This is where it starts, because what we're called to do has to do with the world around us. So what does Genesis tell us? Well, first of all, the world has a beginning. In the beginning, God created, Genesis 1.1 says. Seems rather obvious, doesn't it? The world has a beginning. But this idea was a radical thought at the time. In the ancient world and in Eastern philosophy, people didn't consider there was a beginning. For example, Hinduism believes that everything in the cosmos is eternal and that the creatures in it, including ourselves, are an illusion. So the meaning of life is to overcome that illusion and escape the world. The same is true in Buddhism. The physical reality of the world is a problem and it's meant to be overcome. And the thought is that ultimate reality lies elsewhere. So we need to escape the physical world. But the Genesis view is so, so different. In creating the world, God proclaimed it good and very good. It's pictured as paradise, perfect. It's an idyllic place because it represented God's presence. The world isn't a mistake. It's not a problem to be escaped from or overcome. In biblical faith, the world is good and it's a beautiful place for God's creatures to flourish. In fact, the heavens declare the glory of God. All creation was given to humanity to enjoy. So we're told to go and eat of the fruit of the garden. It's paradise, a place where God's people are supposed to prosper. And even more than that, 
The world is God's personal creation. It's his handiwork. In Genesis, we see that the ordering of the cosmos is done by a personal creator. You know, our Earth is the only planet in the universe that we know of where this is the case. Genesis shows God's meticulous ordering of a chaotic, empty space. There's six days, and in the first three days, we see the problem of formlessness solved by dividing the land and the sea, the day and the night. Then in the second three days, we see the problem of emptiness solved by filling the space with creatures to form a picture of a beautiful world. All of this reflects the Creator's nature. Nothing happens by chance. There's no chaotic or impersonal forces at work. It's the handiwork of a personal creator, and it's labelled good and very good. In fact, the modern scientific movement was birthed in this understanding. We also see that creation is not divine, but it is sacred that the garden of God's creation is seen to be like a temple where God's presence dwells. It wasn't a temple made by human hands, but one that is personally designed by God and it fills the whole earth. As we said before, the heavens and the earth declare God's glory. Therefore, it is to be looked after. It's to be stewarded. And part of our commission is to do just that, to be God's ambassadors, to look after God's good temple, to enjoy the sacred space. It's not divine. We don't worship it, but we do treat it well. Well, what about our job then? What are we supposed to do in the midst of this beautiful creation? We've already talked about what it means to be made in God's image. In ancient thinking, images of the gods had a very important task. They were to represent the god of the temple. They were given tasks to perform on behalf of their god, just like an ambassador to a foreign country. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 tells us that we are given domain on God's earth. We're told to rule over it, to have dominion. It's like we're the owner of a house. And we've been given the creative power to renovate it, to style it, to make decisions around it, where to continue God's good creative activity on the earth. And that in itself is an extraordinary idea. Remember, ancient attitudes about the created world were that humanity were leftovers from creation. They were made to do the dirty work of the gods. But in this account, we've been raised from the status of a slave to a position of royalty. So in this understanding, productive work is a gift, not a curse. Having a job is a good thing, not a bad thing. And God has meaningful work for each one of us to do. We're to care for the earth, to enjoy it, to represent the God who made us and to make a difference for his glory. That's the purpose for which we are created. What an incredible commission that is. Having been made in God's image, we are called to continue representing him on the earth. We're called to continue his work to look after the planet, to enjoy his creation and declare his glory in and through us. That's what the big story of Genesis is all about. The Genesis story also reveals one other core truth about God's heart for us, and it's this, how we treat one another. And that's what we're going to talk about in our final show of the series. 
Now, I read earlier a couple of lines from the American Declaration of Independence. It's a great statement, isn't it? And so important. Everyone is created equal. Everyone is of value. Everyone has the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. No one in our Western world would dispute those things today. However, unlike what the Declaration says, the idea of human rights is not self-evident. When it was first introduced back in the ancient world, this was a new and radical idea. It was an idea that came from, you guessed it, Genesis. It came from the Judeo-Christian belief that humanity was made in the image of God. And because of that, value is inherent in each individual. Because of that, the concept of human rights came into being. You see, at the time of Genesis, ancient religions and philosophies downplayed the value of men and women. We've already talked about the fact that in the ancient Near East world, the idea was that man came from the leftovers of battles with the gods. They were an afterthought. They were created to do the dirty work of the gods. They were dispensable and were of low value. The idea of human rights has also not been evident in the eastern parts of the world either in contemporary or ancient times. It hasn't been self-evident in India, for example, where wives were thrown onto the funeral pyre with their husbands, or in China or the Middle East. These societies were built on quite different ideals to Western civilization. Our society has been shaped by the story of Genesis. Our civilization has been formed by the idea that all humanity is seen as to be made in God's image. You know, images are meant to depict or portray the one imaged. So kings would set up their images on their borders. They acted like flags on a king's ship. They showed the value of who they represented. And in the same way, we're divine image bearers. Well, God's flag, if you like. In some countries, an act against the flag is treason. And in the same way, every act against a human can also be seen as treason against God. That means it's very important to God how we treat one another. And we see this idea throughout the scriptures. The value of humanity meant that the idea of human sacrifice in Bible times was considered terribly evil as it is today. It also meant that even the weakest of society must be looked after and not just abandoned to their fate. God's people were to care for the widows and the orphans and the foreigners. No one was too young or too old or too black or too white or too disabled or too sick to be valued and accepted in God's eyes. It's this idea that shaped the West. So today we have uh, policies like the humane treatment of prisoners during wartime. We have the right to a fair trial, and we care about the plight of unborn babies and the quality of life for the weak and the elderly. And these have all come about because of the truths given in the big story. It's why Christians have always advocated for refugees. Why in history, people like Wat Tyler, the leader of a peasant's revolt in the 13th century, appealed to Genesis to release the oppression of the poor. It's why issues of gender equality and social justice and looking after the sick are a priority for Christians. Why Christians are spurred to anti-slavery causes such as A21. Why it's said in Afghanistan that if you speak of human rights or women's rights, you get accused of having converted to Christianity. 
being made in God's image means understanding that everyone is made in God's image too. And we must never deface the image of God in our neighbour. We must always treat them as a carrier of God's presence, created by him for his glory. We must love our neighbours, no matter who they are and how they act. The big story is a reminder of who we are and what we're called to do, but also about how we're supposed to treat one another. What an incredible message this story gives us. I hope you've enjoyed seeing how the opening chapters of Genesis give us a perspective that helps us to understand the nature and the character of God, that each one of us is created in his image and we're called to flourish in his good creation and look after it. Great to have you on the show today. Don't miss the next episode by subscribing on iTunes. Search for God Conversations with Tanya Harris and click subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review so others can learn to hear God's voice too. 